Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so. And yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests for coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. If you have a second, head on over to YouTube, life as a dot dot. That's where you can find it. And yeah, like or subscribe. It would help a ton. All right, well, on to the show. Your smartphone. I'd suspect that most of you are probably holding one right now. If not, it's probably nearby. I'd like you to consider that device for a second here. You know, what makes it so aesthetically pleasing? What about the functionality? Why is it so simple to use? Well, let me tell you, none of that, you know, the way it looks, the way it works, the way it operates, came together by happenstance. No, there's a little bit more in behind all of that. Well, that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. We're going to dive into the world of UX research. This is a field where we have professionals who get into all of this. They gather data, they gather information, which ultimately is used to help create hit products and services. I've got to say, you're in for a treat. The guest today that I have lined up is someone who has tons and tons of insights on the world of UX research. And we get into it all. I mean, we, we look at, you know, the nuanced insights into the criticality of her work, you know, what types of approaches shape her work and what she does and how she approaches her craft. We're also going to look at her own personal journey, starting from Wyoming to her international endeavors. Beyond that, there are a few really interesting stories, and we even get into chatter on things like AI and how that could be shifting and changing the work of UX. So all up, this is an episode you're not going to want to miss. All right, well, let me introduce our guests and we can get started. Lindsay DeWitt Pratt is a user experience or UX researcher and global project lead at Bold Insight, a full service UX and human factors research agency based in Chicago and extending via its Recite global family to the UK, Germany, Switzerland, Japan, China, Singapore, and India. An inveterate world traveler and dot connector, Lindsay has lived and worked in five countries and explored countless more, and she now calls Paris home. Before leaving academia to pursue a career in UX, Lindsay researched and taught at top universities in the US, Japan, and Europe. Her work focused on the nexus of religion, culture, and gender. She's the leading expert on women's exclusion from sacred sites, including several UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Japan. 
Lindsay herself holds a PhD in Asian languages and cultures from UCLA, among other degrees, and applies her 10 plus years of research and teaching experience to create valuable user experiences for global companies. An accomplished speaker and writer, she draws on her passion for language, culture, and cross-cultural communication to lead and manage global UX research engagements for Bold Insight and Recite Global. So with all that stated, here's my conversation with Lindsay DeWitt Pratt. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing, Lindsay? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited for this. I mean, I think your profession to a lot of people might be a bit of a black box. Like I don't know necessarily that everyone would fully un- understand or comprehend what you know what you do, what your line of work is all about. So that's one of the reasons I'm really excited for today, amongst many other things. So yeah, maybe with that in mind, we can just jump right into it. Sound all right? Let's do it. All right. Well, this first segment is something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition, sometimes of the industry or of the job itself. And I do it for a couple of reasons. I think it's a nice launching point into the discussion. You know, sometimes these definitions hit, sometimes they're just off. So, and also too, I think there's a cultural element to it as well. We could hold the same position title in different parts of the world. And just that cultural element might shift or change, you know, the expectations of what that job's all about. So let me just read that off for you. I'm going to forewarn you. It is a bit of a mouthful. I might stumble through <laughs> this, but uh, maybe afterwards you can share your thoughts on it. Does sound okay? Mm-hmm. Here we go. So UX research, user experience research. User research focuses on understanding user behaviors, needs, and motivations through interviews, surveys, usability evaluations, and other forms of feedback methodologies. It is used to understand how people interact with products and evaluate whether design solutions meet their needs. This field of research aims at improving the user experience, or UX, of products, services, or processes by incorporating experimental and observational research methods to guide the design, development, and refinement of a product. User research is used to improve a multitude of products like websites, mobile phones, medical devices, banking, government services, and many more. It is an iterative process that can be used at any time during product development and is at and is a core part of user-centered design. I almost had it stumble at the last little bit there. That sure was a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, the first takes, I mean, what do you think of that? Well, sure. It, it has all the key touch points, I think, of what user research UX is to me. So no huge red flags, but also not very enjoyable to read through. And to clearly understand, and I think especially if I was someone um, like I was in the not-so-distant past, past just encountering the world of UX research, I would struggle to really grab on to what that meant. So it's a little stiff, lots of formal technical terms. Very Wikipedia-esque, I'd say. Very Wikipedia-esque, but it's good that it's comprehensive. So that's a nice, that's, that's a nice aspect of it. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that that stood out, like one or two elements that, you know, like this is a major, major part that might have been lost in the definition itself, just because it is so long and rambly? <laughs> sure. I think all the words that you need are in there, but we could just take a few, extract a few and make it much more simple and elegant too. And I think to do that, just start with the major words, user and experience. So I mean, for some people, it might be odd. What do you mean users that could have some interesting connotations depending on where you live or what you're thinking about? So who are users? They're people. 
they're humans. I guess they could be animals or maybe robots in the near future too. <laughs> but it's yeah. anyone who uses or interacts with something, something a company has on the table, something a company wants to put on the table. That definition has different examples, good examples of products, but I think there's more. It could be experiences, services, offerings, anything really. And then there's experience. So what is the experience that we're talking about? It's kind of the user, the human, the person, animal, whatever, the journey of using that product service offering. So I I think of it like a, it's like a journey. It's Mm. how to capture the experience, you know, how you feel, how easy or not easy it is to use something. Is it enjoyable? Is it frustrating, distracting? Does it make your life better? I think one of the super interesting and honestly radical things about UX research is that it's implying a a big ego shift. So it's all about the people on the other end. It's not just about the people with the money who are creating the things. It really puts it front and center and puts the emphasis on who the other end is. So it's stepping outside of that space of I'm creating something, people are going to love it to the actual reality of the user on the other end. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I mean, that that's a distinction that you definitely wouldn't be getting from Wikipedia for one, <laughs> but uh, but really insightful as well. Like it's just a, a whole different angle to it. Another thing that kind of stood out is like the questions. It's like a lot of questions that you're asking, maybe as the user itself or or somebody like in your position. Like, how is it being received? Like, is it designed the right way? Is it creating the right type of emotional feel? You know, just a series of questions to kind of dig down further. And uh, I'm sure we're going to uncover a little bit more about that in the, in the course of this talk. But yeah, I would say UX research is so much about excellent UX research is so much about excellent questions. Mm. Digging deep into the problem space. And that's that's where you come up with the roadmap for how to improve or create from scratch something that's really meaningful. And emotional, you know, provokes the right kind of emotions and is accessible and can be really used in a way that makes people's lives better. Well, maybe we could shift on into this other segment here, a day in a life. And I'd like to know, like, what activities, like what jobs and duties are you primarily immersed in on a day-to-day basis within this role? Okay. So first of all, my role as a UX researcher is a little bit specific I work mostly on global projects. So I can talk a little bit about like what the tasks that I would do as a UX researcher and a consultant. I work at a consultancy and that's a big aspect of it as well. And then kind of the global dimension too. They're connected. They, you know, they interact and interrelate on lots of different points, but there are a little, a few distinctions that are key too. So, I mean, my background is in research. So a lot of the time, like I said, is questions, digging into problem spaces, making research plans, finding, you know, scheduling interviews, finding people to interview, the right people to interview, creating a discussion guide, having interviews, analyzing, taking notes. Uh, Then, you know, the real creative strategic work of what do you do with all that data? And that's reporting, finding insights. And sometimes, you know, it's not as easy as, well, nine out of 10 people said that They like this or they do this because of that. Sometimes it's, and very often, the real gold is in finding that one small thing. So that's, that's why you have to ask the right questions too. Because if it's just this blanket general approach, 
it's very hard to pull out the really unique aspects that could make all the difference in whether it's an app, a product, or whoever it's for. Yeah. So as a global researcher and also as a consultant too, there's a, an additional element of managing that process. So what I've been doing mostly since I transitioned into this field last summer is managing large global projects in the consumer tech space. So in my case, you know, and a lot of the things, the projects I work on, most of them, I can't really talk in detail because it's uh, restricted by client NDAs, um, but I can give you kind of the, the broad touch. Rough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And on the website for my company, we have lots of great case studies that outline different kinds of projects we work on. And my company also, we cover the whole spectrum, a lot of medical device studies. I mean, user experience research can apply to anything. Once it's on your radar, like you are not going to be able to unsee it. You can't not see it. Yeah, You yeah, can't yeah. not see it anywhere you go. So in my case, because my background was really linked with language and culture research in an international context, uh, my first major set of uh, projects to oversee was looking at the quality of, of translations for a large consumer tech company across different applications, different products, and lots of different countries. So started doing 10 at once and then did another seven. And, you know, so a lot of moving parts. I'm not the one in the interviewer seat, but I'm responsible for connecting all the dots, making sure everything flows and that everyone's happy and getting what they need. So a huge soft skill flex. And I think that's yeah, yeah. Like the core of, of consultant work which is you know, a new space I'm stepping into as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a lot of time is, you know, a lot of email communication, a lot of meetings, a lot of connecting with people and making sure that it's not this game of telephone where you start with A and you end with F. Yeah. You want to keep That's A exactly with A. That's exactly what I was thinking and, yeah. about there. Yeah. It's like how critical <laughs> part totally. that must play is like being aware of that and ensuring that that doesn't happen. I'm sure it still does at times, but doing your best to kind of like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I've seen my position mostly. Um, more recently, I've done some really deep co-creative projects with clients where we come up with the questions together. We write all the, you know, whether it's surveys or recruitment screeners or all the documentation, the discussion guide, and then execute the interviews together. And yeah, so there's different dimensions. It's all, it's like, where are you? It's the same research process, but like, are you in the seat of the interviewer? Yeah. Are you taking notes? Are you the one overseeing it? Are you the one overseeing the overseeing at the really global yeah, level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about yeah. scale and vantage points? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's just kind of popping into my mind is just the complexity of it all, right? Like you think of a product or service that hits the market. And of course, I mean, like you assume that there's, a lot of moving parts in behind that to, to finally have that product or service hit the market. But the way you're just sort of explaining it there, like the complexity, the difference between a product hitting or a service hitting and just flopping is sometimes just these tiniest little things, right? So it could be one interpretation or it could be one question that uncovers this bit of information, which is critical to that design of the product or whatever you're, you're putting out to market. So it's, it's, it's all of these different things. And yeah, again, complexity, at least for me, is one of the words that's kind of popping into my mind right now so absolutely and the more when you take it global then the web just expands exponentially right um, 
languages and mental models and ways of, you know, norms, also rules and laws of how things can operate, how, yeah. So it's, but I love that really complex space, not, not always creating order per se, but having a strong enough handle on it that I can, you know, communicate what needs to happen and help that flow work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes back to like that mental simulation as well, you know, and and wearing a few different hats and being put in different situations where you're, you're challenging yourself. Things aren't always smooth or easy or straightforward or linear, I suppose. There's a lot of lateral thinking that's involved in that. And uh, again, from some of the guests I've had on my program, that's one of the biggest sources of, yeah, at times probably stress, but also fulfillment too, I think is that at the end of the day. So, all right, well, maybe you could hop into this other segment here of Pathways. And for this one, I kind of like to rewind a little bit. I think it'd be fascinating to hear about how you made your way into this profession. And I do also understand, I did kind of lightly speak about this off the top, that you were originally within academia. And even, you know, I could throw this into the hat as well about your cultural experiences living in several different countries and that being a part of who you are. Maybe we could bring all those elements together. And if you can, maybe like trace how some of those things might have led you into the work that you're doing right now. Absolutely. I think. You know, if if I look back from the very beginnings of growing up in Wyoming to where I am today in Paris and all the points in between, you know, some of it, someone might look at that story and say, wow, there's some big leaps there. And yeah, <laughs> but for me, it's kind of like this intuitive, natural progression of, well, questions, asking questions, following curiosity and, and really just diving in there, not being afraid of, you know, whether it seemed weird or, or what. So how did I go Half the phone. from yeah, being a, a young girl in Wyoming, studying Japanese of all things, and then transitioning into graduate school, interested in environmental issues and Buddhist studies and other Asian religions to a PhD in um, gender, religion, Buddhism, lots more of that, Asian languages and cultures. And then this career in academia, and now this shift into UX research. So there are threads that link all of it. There are some jumps there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are some jumps, but I, I would like to, I've been thinking about it, just getting ready to talk to you. And I had a, a light bulb moment where I, I realized what's linking all of it is this process of asking questions and following curiosity, but also this idea of, 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 of empathy, which I find is a common thread that links everything that's attracted my attention. So empathy is this mm. huge topic in, you know, philosophy, lots of different academic fields, humanities and social sciences, but Buddhism specifically, and this whole idea at the core of Buddhism, that you have to relate to other people and understand yourself in relation to others. So that kind of prefaced me from like Wyoming to the world. And that set the stage for lots of global travels, but also studying Buddhism too. And empathy is at the core of user research too. It's almost a word that is overused. I noticed when I started exploring UX as, you know, this place I thought I could land and would fit really well. I saw it everywhere. And part of me was a little like cringe at it because of studying it in the context of Buddhism and this, you know, more philosophical orientation. Uh, But what I realized is UX research is basically an exercise in like really understanding and grasping empathy. So the like identifying yourself, not with like your own vision of a product, a service, an experience, whatever, 
but with the other end of that too. So it's really like an ego transition. And that's exactly oh, yeah. what I loved and found so fascinating about Buddhism too. So that's like the conceptual link, but it's also a very big stretch to go from like being a professor at a university in Japan to leaving the world of academia. The inside and outside dilemma is is tricky, is tricky. And there were some, you know, something didn't feel right. Something felt like it wasn't fitting. Also being a little bit of a fish out of water in a sense, being uh, from an American university lineage, having lived a long time in Japan, uh, having postdoctoral experiences in Europe too. Those are really different job markets. Those are really different Certainly. Um, sets of like ecosystems, norms, career progressions, strategies, lots, a, a lot of different things. And I, I kind of struggled there. You know, my family life is more rooted in Europe now, spend a lot of time in Japan. So there was just some sense of like, something's not fitting. So I felt like the international aspect of my, you know, my background and my personality was a handicap almost at a certain mm. point. Like I would have to move somewhere really far away or I wouldn't, I wouldn't really have control over where my career would progress. And yeah. that turned out to be a huge strength in UX research. So I'm leveraging on a daily basis that internationality, we can say yeah. that word. So that's been a really cool, positive shift. Now, was that, sorry to interrupt really ahead, quickly please. here, but like UX research, was that something that you kind of like uncovered yourself or like in, in going through that process? Because it sounds like a process that you're kind of like working your way through these emotions and getting, you know, to understand yourself better and what's driving you. You've already spoken of these notions of like curiosity and asking questions. I could imagine that's part of it too, but like, did the UX research part of it come from exploration, you know, into some possible career options or was it suggested to you from those who know you well or? Yeah, the latter. One of my, my dearest friends who knows me very well and really had a, a clear picture of all my different sides and yeah. He just kind of nudged me and I immediately felt like, oh, this is, you know, I'd be considering a career in public service, whether it was for a UN body or something related to, you know, a direct building upon my research and heritage studies and UX research kind of came out of nowhere. It was this dark horse and it just, you know, there's one of my favorite quotes of um, Japanese author Murakami Haruki is chance encounters are what keep us going. So being open to like these suggestions, these nudges, the things you've never heard about, but it might be yeah. really a good fit for you. That's what it was. Nice, nice. More times than not, even within the segment, this pathway segment, like it's things like this. It's through reflection that people find their way. It's through you know, accidents, almost like just chance encounters or conversations with others. Like it's so rarely do I find, or I have a guest say that it was just like this linear path. Like just, you know, I beelined right towards where I wanted to go my entire life. Like it just doesn't go that way. I mean, more times than not. So I think it's really, you know, interesting in the way you explained it there, like the reflection element, you know, and, and, I, and I suppose too, I mean, your friend coming in here and sort of just, you know, suggesting this and, and, and there you go, like a whole different path of your life sort of develops just off of, yeah, moments. I'm sure you have you have such great insight and in, you know with all these conversations of of how non-linear people's lives actually are. This idea that I'm young and I want to become a doctor. Well, I wanted to become a heart surgeon for about one year 
And then I wanted to be, you know, a veteran. I wanted to be all these things, but it wasn't like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write out my life path. And then I follow that. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah, like it just, that. it doesn't, it doesn't. And like, I, I, I had this theory that like probably the only profession that I could, you know, would pop into my mind that would be like that would be, you know, becoming a surgeon, becoming a doctor. And about three weeks or four weeks ago, I had one on and he set me straight right away. And like <laughs> his was anything but linear in that sense. So it kind of just shattered that, uh, that hypothesis that I had that, you know, I'm probably like leaning more towards like 99.9% of people's, you know, pathways are a little bit of ups and downs, roundabouts and everything else in there. So anyway, all right, well, maybe we can slide into this next segment here anyway, Lindsay, a Q&A discovery. We can kind of just continue this back and forth. And I thought, you know, we could kind of go into this in, in a bit of a playful manner. In researching, you know, your profession, UX researcher, I, I came up with some keyword topics and skills that could easily be attached to, to what you do. So I was thinking I could like read off a few of those or maybe one by one. And you'd kind of give me just like quick takes on, on each of these words and, uh, and yeah. how they fit in with the work. Sound all right? Yeah. All right, here we go. So the first one, communication. As important as water. You don't have it, you don't survive. Empathy. The driving force. It's the, what moves us and what we always need to keep tracking. It's like the compass almost. Problem solving. Ooh, the detective work. It's the process of moving through that space, the experience of empathizing. Curiosity. The spark. Collaboration. Collaboration is like the, well, it can be a really amazing vehicle. Gets you somewhere faster, better, smarter with friends. But it's also like a teacher because when you collaborate with people, you have different perspectives. You get checked. You check yourself. You do some checking too. So I would say, yeah, vehicle and teacher. And here's the impossible question. I'm still going to ask it anyways. But uh, out of those those topics there that I've just listed off and you're just commenting on, which would you say would be the probably the most critical in terms of doing this job well? I've already talked about it maybe too much, but I think... Empathy is the word we have to have here, but maybe a different, a little bit of a different spin on empathy. So bear with me. Okay. So if, as I see it, empathy is like what moves you, what moves you to do something and what propels you. It's like the North star, right? It always needs to be there. It's that driving force. Because my background is in Buddhism, I've spent a lot of time studying Chinese, Japanese, Korean, different texts, different takes, different stories, different you know legends that have either empathy as the subject, the object, the moral, or whatever. And so, like I said, coming into UX research, and it's kind of one of these these buzzwords, and you like some people seem to use it a little superficially, but but I truly believe that it it makes UX research shine, and it shows why it's really important too. But with empathy, that kind of reflects into all the other elements too. So empathy should be the basis for your communication with people. The communication rooted in empathy is what makes collaboration, good collaboration possible. And having that as your compass, like that informs your problem solving, your decision making. It really makes all of the things tick. But the twist I want to give is that empathy itself in the Buddhist context it, they don't really talk about empathy as much as they talk about compassion. So compassion is empathy with, it's like it's wrapped with loving kindness. So it has like, but loving kindness, it's almost like a boundary. Like 
if you strictly empathize with something or someone, you feel their pain very in a very real sense. I hope it's okay to give one little story. So there's this, this famous um, French monk, Mathieu Richard, um, who maybe you've heard of, but it's fitting also because I, I live in France too. So he, he underwent some neurological testing where he was asked to go into a meditative state, you know, Buddhist monks and other meditative tradition people are, should be experts at being able to tap into certain subtle states. So he was asked first to go into a state of, of compassion and his brain was tested and certain areas lit up. Um, and the way he described it was like, you know, this warm, positive sensation of, of, you know, feeling really good and, and loving. And then he was asked to go into a state of empathy and empathize with the suffering of the world. Yeah. And his brain had different areas light up that light up when most people are asked or other people who have been studied with brain sensors asked to think about empathy. And he described it as a really difficult experience because, you know, you're assuming that the pain and suffering and actually the root of the word empathy in Greek is to suffer is suffering huh. or feeling into something. So and suffering, of course, is the core of Buddhism. So I just find this whole discourse super fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So he asked, you know, for the rest of the study, can I just think about compassion? And I think. If we think about UX research more and more these days in terms of like responsible design, ethical design, accessibility, you know, emotional reactions, experiences that will make the world a better place. Like maybe we should be thinking about compassion as a replacement mm. term. It's like the one up, the add one, yeah, the empathy yeah, yeah, that yeah. we see in lots of UX stuff. That's what I've been thinking about. Yeah, I really, really like that distinction because that, that, like the way you just sort of laid it out there, it is a major, major one that that you could shift a lot of, you know, products and services that come to market and how we interact with things and how we go about our daily lives. I mean, like some of these products are, you know, integrate so deeply into what we do, and if they're designed in such a way with that distinction in mind, it really change the course of how you know how we interact with one another and again with these products and services. So, yeah, that's uh. <laughs> I feel as though, like, at this point in the conversation, we should be rewriting that Wikipedia definition right now. <laughs> like, and there's we so can. much more that has been added to it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think that could be another one of your uh, your projects, perhaps, down the line. But, uh, yeah. It wouldn't be the first Wikipedia definition I revised. The ones for my research topic on the exclusion of women from sacred sites in English and in Japanese were really atrocious. And I, I really had to go in there. All right. Well, you've got another one to add to the list perhaps now. Sure. <laughs> well, on the on the heels of uh, this conversation here, I've got one more. And you've already spoken to this lightly about this notion of culture, you know, this whole construct of culture and how it enters into the fray, uh, you know, within UX research, the influence it has as far as, you know, the impacts on these products and services, how they come into the markets and whatnot. And I'd love to hear about that element, but then also too. You know, in, in some of this reflection of your past experiences of living in so many different countries, being part of so many different cultures, how that's helped you, you know, become successful in what you're doing right now. Sure. Well, like I like I said already, the international element is like is part of my biography and background, but I felt like in in the academic world it was maybe handicap is too strong a term. Yeah. But it in terms of finding that you know, because in academia, it's all about finding a tenured job, that one job 
to rule them all that you're going to stay in forever. And of course, this is like becoming an outdated idea. But that was challenging because of, not because of my exposure, but for my specific experiences. Um, not wording that very well, but so my collective international life experience really impacts my day-to-day work as a UX researcher. It manifests in all my communications. I can talk a little bit about a recent research project I've been doing where I interviewed 26 different UX researchers in 26 different countries. And just the like the in, inviting, um, speaking with them, scheduling the interviews, having meaningful conversations, you know, that all I feel like I'm living in lots of different cultures and having that curiosity and drive to travel and and rooted in an empathetic, you know, compassionate mindset. I was just going to say, like, there you go. Empathy and compassion coming in. Because without that, right, and you speaking with all these different people, it'd be so easy if you didn't have those skills to just dismiss someone or dismiss an idea. Just like, oh, this doesn't fit. It's not part of my worldview. And if you don't have that skill or that recognition that, no, I need to be really, like, empathizing or have this degree of compassion for what this person is trying to communicate. Maybe they're having a difficult time of getting it across, but if I'm patient enough, I probably will be able to get it. Sorry to interrupt there, but it was just, again, springing to mind. But it it doesn't even actually have to be international travel because now, you know, all those experiences are enrich my outlook on the world and how I engage with people. But then they also, in the sense of, you know, I could go back to my hometown in Wyoming and they just give you more skills and more perspective to see and really in a meaningful way, like appreciate the differences within cultures too. So within a culture, within a society, there's an infinite diversity within your own, you know, high school graduating class in a small town in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. There's so many <laughs> different, bet. you know, so many different people and everyone's story is meaningful and everyone's perspective is valuable. So I feel like that sort of like macro, micro traveling internationally and living internationally, it like magnifies that and makes it, you know, all those differences are like in your face. Like I spent three hours this morning at an administrative office trying to get my visa validated. And, you know, some of the process is <laughs> like, oh, gosh, but, you know, it's all. It uh, all yeah, that's probably putting it all to the test right there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can kind of gauge yourself how far you've come along by uh, those types of experiences. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe I've got this one last question here within this segment, this Q&A discovery segment here, and it's returning to this, this idea of, you know, people that have been on the program itself and this notion of reflection, and we've spoken about that already. And I think, you know, it's probably clear to see for a lot of people at this point in our conversation that, that you are, you know, self-reflecting quite a bit, and it's maybe it's part of your work, and maybe it's part of your personality as well. And again, from my experience, like I'm seeing people that the ones that are successful in in their work, whatever it might be, whatever industry it is, I think can easily sort of attach a degree of meaning to their work. They, they can find their fulfillment in what they do. And that sort of fuels them and gives them motivation, I think, to keep powering through difficult times or challenges and whatnot, and, and ultimately helps them get to where they want to be. So I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about what you would think about that and how, you know, maybe that reflection has helped you along along the way. You've already spoken, you know, how it's kind of guided you perhaps into the profession, but maybe in terms of your success within it as well. Sure. Well, I think, you know, this idea of the good life, there's been so many people writing and thinking about it and and also just thinking about it and not writing about it. 
all over the world for a long time. You know, what are the ingredients that makes a good life? And that is mean, you know, what does that look like? What is meaningful? What does happiness really entail? And I think, you know, of course, that process of, of defining what that means and then going for it is really personal and personalized. It depends on so many different factors. But yes, I do think about it a lot. And I I definitely try to, I want my energy to go to places that I find meaningful, intellectually engaging, socially stimulating, and, and ultimately rewarding for not just professional Lindsay, you know, Lindsay with the PhD after her name, but, you know, in terms of decision-making in my, that everything is connected. I really, everything is connected, all the different aspects of life, all the different buckets, but they pour into one pond. So striking a balance between how you want to spend your time, your days, your weeks, your months, your life, your professional world is a huge aspect of that. So I think about that a lot and I feel sure for me, UX research is a place where I can really tap into the creativity, strategy, decision-making in ways that I find intellectually stimulating, socially engaging, and also, you know, that let me build a life for me and my family too. We're able to support ourselves. So, yeah, I think, you know, people have such different visions of what the good life is for them. And some of them might resonate with mine. Some might be completely different. And I respect all those too, but I think most people think, I think everyone really does think about it. You know, my sister has a very different kind of professional world, although we're much closer now in terms of our professional spheres, but a different take on the good life and, and, and that's equally valuable and, and yeah, respect that. <laughs> yeah. I think there's like that surface level sort of like idea of what that means for a lot of people and and it can be superficial you know in in one sense but you're right like I think a lot of people do personally probably dig down a little bit deeper and like you know am I am I feeling a degree of fulfillment you know am I coming home from my job every day just frustration or you know not feeling as though I'm contributing to my fullest degree of what I can do you know it's like these challenging questions that you're constantly asking yourself and and from what I'm gathering in this conversation is that you're, you're thoughtfully going through this. And also, too, like, I could be wrong here, but it seems to me that UX research for you personally is, is, is hitting or checking all the many of these boxes, at least, where you, you are being fulfilled. You're being challenged maybe as well along the way. But that's also part of the enjoyment, right? I mean, if it's too easy, it's certainly not going to be rewarding at the end of the day. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. And after I said that and and listened to what you just said too, I realized that my thoughts on this, my reflections come from a space of great privilege. And I don't take that for granted because I, I know that that is not the norm for everyone around the world to be able to think upon and, and actively create this path where, where my energy goes is where it fits and, and to find that. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, there are a lot of people who have jobs and careers that they do not find fulfilling, but they have to do them to support their family too. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of privilege and gratitude that needs to go into being able to have this, this space for reflection. Let's not forget that. It's a nice way to kind of close out that question, I think. Well, maybe we can skip on over into this middle segment here, water cooler story segment. And here I just asked, you know, guests to indulge listeners with the story related to the, to the line of work. And you've already shared one already, but uh, I'm curious if you have something else for us. So my idea for this story is one of the unexpected 
happenings that I've experienced since entering the UX field. So transitioning out of the world of academia that I felt like I knew very well into the corporate world of industry and specifically into the the world of tech, the tech world. So, and maybe this will be helpful for your, your listeners who are, you know, pondering career changes or have had career changes. So like I mentioned in academia, all the emphasis is on finding your job, finding the one job. And then once you have that job, the idea is that you'll be set until you retire. Of course, that model is is not so sturdy as it was before. (laughs) Um, But one of the um, really eye-opening experiences for me in UX research, some people prepared me. I worked with a few career coaches and, you know, oh, the differences between academia and industry, the pace, the the movement, the dynamism, and all that I personally find very attractive and it's a good fit for me. But uh, lately in the past six months or so, uh, the layoffs that have happened, the tech layoffs has really, they haven't impacted my personal career, very thankfully, but bearing witness to and you know, having some relationships that I had been building in my projects and really just even reading posts on LinkedIn of people's personal experiences, being fully invested in a company, that being their livelihood, and then one day showing up to work and you can't get in or just these really heartbreaking stories of, of walking down a path, putting all of your heart and energy into a path and then having at least, you know, a major roadblock at the time. So that was a pretty emotional, that's been an emotional eye-opening but also like a key learning for me too. It's like in this world of, of tech that's rapidly changing. And especially now with the generative AI unfolding at this like lightning speed, you know, how do you stay resilient? How do you stay confident? And how do you stay calm when you're existing in a storm and the storm might be after you next? You know, there's just a lot Certainty is a is a myth, but the uncertainty in this world of tech related research is a you know it is very clear and apparent. So coming to terms with that and having some you know tangential experiences with it has been like a really powerful you know it's something that lots of water coolers, virtual mm. water coolers, let's say. <laughs> Lots of conversation yeah. around that has been going on and, and still is going on too. No doubt, no doubt. And then like this kind of nice segue point into this next segment, actually a crystal ball segment where, you know, I, I probably, I don't know, late last year, well, I'd say maybe in September of last year, probably around that point, you know, chat GPT was just kind of like there were whispers of what this was going to be all about because I don't think it was released just yet. But around that point in this program, it's a weekly program, I started having guests bringing it up, bringing it up, you know? And then of course, sometimes like I'd be prompting them on this. And now it's, I, I should just be renaming the segment ChatGPT because more or less like the impact that it's having, the emotion that it's also, you know, creating in a lot of people's worlds right now, like some things that you were just sort of hinting at there, some fear, also at the same time, some excitement, no doubt as well, because it's going to shift things around in a lot of exciting ways. But a lot of times there's just like this uncertainty. And getting back to, to UX research, I'd be curious to, to hear about what some of that chatter has been about, you know, and what, what are people saying of how it could potentially alter or shift the landscape, what, what people like yourself are doing? This has been a huge topic on, on my mind lately. And in the past three weeks now, I've 
yeah, with with um, collaborating with some of my amazing colleagues and team members, uh, launched a, a project to really take the pulse of the global UX research community. Like, how are people thinking about this? What are people, are people using it? Or are they not? What are the sort of future, what's the crystal ball? So it's really been a huge crystal ball moment. And yeah. curiosity has has led me to kind of, you know, first I thought, oh, I could just talk to a few people. And then it, it was like, oh, 12. And then it quickly scaled to, I interviewed 26 people and then asked them to follow up and do one interview in their home language too. So we almost have 50 interviews now that are really just asking people the question you asked me. And what do people say? I mean, we're going to roll out the findings of this and, you know, over the next six months or so at my company and some blog posts and conferences and publications. But I can just say as the person who is like on the ground, capturing the stories, listening to the, the fears, concerns, it's like you said, it's, it's both. It's two things. It's excitement and it's yeah, mitigated or measured by the other side of the coin, which is a little bit of a nervousness. And of course, everyone's story is unique and there's a lot of differences, but what was certainly clear to me is that people are sure that it's here. It's a moment. Things will change. It's the beginning of the beginning. It's like the surface of we've turned a corner. Something has opened Pandora's box. I don't know. Mm. So how it impacts our lives as researchers and as UX researchers is definitely on everyone's mind. Are people using it? Different degrees of interest. But this idea that, well, even if I don't want to use it, I have to, I'm going to have to become, you know, upskill in prompt engineering or do something. I think that paired with this right now, most people don't really have, they're not engaging with it much. They've just heard about, you know, the last six months, it's very new. How do you go from zero to proficiency with a tool that, you know, for me growing up in the eighties, like sci-fi, you know, I just always think of Terminator too, you know, like. This really far away image of something that is very dangerous, but it's really, it's really far away. It's not real. And now it's, you know, on my browser window. And so maybe, you know, they're finding ways to like enter into that. You mentioned black box in a different topic before, but into that black box of, okay, this is here. It's going to probably change my world. We're not going to know exactly how yet. But what sort of inroads can I make to understanding this machine and how to interact with it? So it's a huge topic on the mind of, you know, me personally, all the research researchers I spoke with, my company at the bold insight level and then at our global level, it's it's really become this. It's the elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of what I'm gathering from a lot of guests on this program as well. And I think like in all these conversations that I've had, like kind of the one way that I'm sort of looking at it right now is, is kind of the sort of like framework of it being a tool rather than this like sort of mythical beast that's going to come in and just like slash its way and just disrupt and terrorize industries the world over. You know, it, it could, it could, but also at the same time, I think it, if you look at it, at least is how I do it. Like you look at it as this tool, like there, it's going to be helpful. It's going to optimize things. It's going to add levels of efficiency, certainly. But at the same time, like I just don't see it coming in, at least right now in its, its current iterative form of just completely turning things upside down overnight, 100%. Like it's not going to replace a person just like that. It still needs that guidance. We need to kind of know when to like 
unleash it on this task, on this sort of thing, and then maybe pull it back here because it just doesn't have the right, I don't know, sense or it doesn't have the right level of sophistication to, to handle this. But over here, yeah, 100%. Like in, in, in that way, I can see it being easier to kind of compartmentalize and sort of rationally look at it. But at the same time, like we're, all, we're emotional. <laughs> and when it's your job, yeah, I, you know, and the uncertainty surrounding it all, I can understand the, uh, the apprehension that, that it's certainly generating with a lot of people. I think so too. I think apprehension was less like a key takeaway than uh, different levels of like, I gotta, I mean, we just have to learn how to use it. We have to leverage that. Yeah. I think, but of course there's a lot of really fast thinking and fast doing like here's a thousand different chat GPT powered tools you can use to like make your research that much easier and faster and go, go, go so much hype and hyperbole. And then, you know, underneath that. And I think the smart strategic way to go is like the slow thinking and doing, which is, you know, a little bit further out, a little bit more cautious and reserved, really driven by curiosity, empathy, with that loving kindness uh, and understanding what it is and how to interact and where to be, where to put up guardrails. So I think, yeah, it'll be interesting in the next six months. You know, it's been six months now and a lot of things have changed. You know, what, what is the news going to be telling us about what is, what are the like marketing posts going to tell us is going to save our lives six months from now too. Or are we just going to spend, you know, we optimize our research flows but we end up filling that extra time, like learning how to do prompts. So is that, is that actually optimizing something? I'm not exactly sure how, you know, the hours in our day that make up a work day are going to be spent. Like chat GPT makes things a lot faster and easier. And then what you're expected to do the remainder of that time, more work and better and faster and for cheaper because clients expect that you can work like a robot. So I think a lot of really core slow thinking needs to be put into mm -hmm. how that's all going to shake out. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, it's, it's representative of this talk almost in a way you mentioned again, those words of empathy, curiosity, asking lots of questions, you know, and I can, I feel as though we're circling back around on how we started, which, uh, you know, it might be a nice point to, to draw things to a close here, but I must say, Lindsay, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I feel like we just got started here. And, uh, you know, from my experience of doing this, it's always a mark of a good conversation and uh, I'm sure listeners are really going to enjoy this one. So thanks so much for taking some time. Thanks, Christopher. It's been such a pleasure. Well, for those interested in learning more about Lindsay and her work, of course, you can find her on LinkedIn. You can also check her out at her company that she works for, Bold Insight, and also Resight Global. And for reference, all this information will be included in the show notes. If you liked today's show, please be sure to share. It helps a ton. You can also show further support by rate, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you access your podcast. And here's the big ask. I'd love if you could head on over to YouTube. I did start a channel there in the last year, and I do have these summary sort of conversations with guests and uh, i have some imagery you can kind of take in the, the whole talk in a different manner if you do happen to get over there hit that like and subscribe button it would help a ton and then finally don't forget to join us on the next episode of life as a where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them i'm your host christopher schoenwald until next time stay curious about life and living Thank you.